0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice
1: over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
0: Close our eyes for a pretty good bit of the day because the earth is in darkness and we adapted to that and we sleep, which means there's the potential for a period of time during the day where other parts of the brain would encroach.
1: Yeah. Great. Uh, and by the way, the reason you've never heard about it before is cause this is brand new. My student and I came up with this and we, um, it's uh, under review right now for publication. The idea is this, right? If you're not using, let's say your visual system, uh, because you're blindfolded, that'll start getting taken over by touch and hearing within about, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. So, what we realized is because the planet rotates in. Wait, wait, wait. Did
0: you say 60 to 90 minutes?
1: Yeah, you start seeing activity in fMRI within 60 to 90 minutes in response to a sound or a touch. You start seeing activity in the visual cortex. This was first shown in 2007. Yeah, so it's unbelievably rapid. And that's the part that really.
0: Welcome down the to the you are not so smart podcast episode 217 this is a very special episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast because my guest is famed, beloved, prolific neuroscientist and entrepreneur and New York Times bestselling author David Eagleman. He just released a new book called Live Wired, which is all about brain plasticity, but it's a lot more than that. It explores how, with technology that he has helped develop, we can expand our senses, expand our consciousness, expand the very range of what the mind can conceive, imagine, and do. And this is hardcore neuroscience that we're going to be talking about here, and we'll be talking about that in just a moment. But first, let me mention two new things are happening starting with this episode. One, you can watch this interview over on the You Are Not So Smart YouTube channel, I'm going to start putting a lot more video content on that channel starting in December, so please help me kick that off by sharing this interview all over the place. And two, if you are a patron of this podcast, or you become one, over at Patreon, at any level, you would have received this episode, if you're already a patron, one week early, and the video of the interview as well, one week early. Both with no advertising, but I'll be doing more stuff like that more often with Patreon in the future early episodes, extra features, and such. But in addition, for this episode, if you're a patron at the $5 level a month or more, along with all the other stuff you get at that level, your name just got put into a hat to win a copy of Eagleman's book, Livewired, what we're talking about on this episode. So you'll get an email today saying that the book is on its way if your name was drawn from that hat. And I Kind of want to actually pull it out of a hat. I'll let you know if I do that for real, physically. (laughs) So starting with this episode, if you're a patron of the You're Not So Smart podcast over at Patreon, at the $5 level or more, each time I interview an author, you'll be entered for a chance to win a copy of that episode's book. And here's the cool thing. Once someone wins, they can't win again until everyone else has won. So after everybody gets a book, it resets, and we will just do that over and over again going forward. Okay, back to David Eagleman. Who is this man? Well, he was the science advisor for Westworld, and of course he was, because he is a neuroscientist who is the author of Incognito, Some, The Brain, Wednesday is Indigo Blue, The Safety Net, which by the way is about surviving pandemics, The Runaway Species, a textbook, and the topic of this interview, LiveWired, and Some, his fiction book, has been translated into like 30 different languages and has been... Turned into two different operas. Yeah. So this guy, he's written dozens of articles for Nature and Wired and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and so on. He's done incredible TED Talks, appeared and starred in multiple documentaries. And as a scientist, he has more than 100 publications. He is currently the head of the Center for Science and Law, an adjunct professor at Stanford, a Guggenheim Fellow, the founder of the company BrainCheck and the co-founder of the company Neosensory. He's just one of those people that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and I'm very, very happy to have him on the show. You can check out more of his stuff over at Eagleman.com, and he tweets at David Eagleman. Here, in this episode, we're going to talk about LiveWired, his new book about how the brain never stops rewiring itself to make sense of changes in the environment, in the body, and even in itself. And what follows is just a long, meandering, multiple-tangent conversation between the two of us, and I think I've introduced it enough. so. Here is David Eagleman, let's pick his brain. We're just going to jump right in. Uh, I guess some people need to know who you are. Uh, so, for the uninitiated, if you could just introduce yourself, we'll go from there.
1: Great. I'm David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist, uh, and I sometimes write books and do television.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like. A, I like. You didn't need to be humble. Uh, I, uh, as I told you as we were setting up, like I, I've I followed you forever, and people have always tr- wanted us to talk to each other, which I think is really cool. Uh, when people ask about the stuff that I do and they say, what books do you recommend? I always say incognito. I always say read the incognito first. Um, and I paraphrase you saying, we often feel like we're the captain of the ship, but we're really just a stowaway. And I have used that a million times. So thank you very much for that. (laughs) Great. (laughs) It's so good. Um, also this book comes along at a really cool time for me. I have a very close friend who just got a cochlear implant. And another very close friend who just got a bionic arm, um, her arm uh, from here from here back, right, uh, was, is her actual arm, and from here forward is the prosthetic arm, and all the fingers move and operate, uh, and she just flexes her muscles, and she's acclimated to it completely, and she showed it off to me just the other day, and I was blown away that we can do that. It's so amazing, so, and your book is just like, hey, yeah, welcome to this world
1: yeah exactly. so uh, right. so my new book uh, is called live Wired uh, and it's all about this. It's all about brain plasticity, which is the flexibility of the brain um to be able to adjust to any sort of body plan, for example so so one of the things that is has always been fascinating to me is that the you know the brain is not pre-programmed to drive the body um Instead, it flexibly figures out what's going on with the body. And as soon as your friend loses her arm, her brain's map say, oh, I get it. It's a, it's a brain without, it's a body without an arm now. And then as soon as she gets this new prosthetic arm put on, the brain says, oh, oh, I get it. It's a body with this extra thing on it now. And I'll just figure out how to drive this. It's an extremely flexible system. And we don't know how to build anything like that. Um, so, you know, I live in Silicon Valley. And all of the talk here, just like around the world, is on hardware and software layers. And what's going on in these three pounds is nothing like that. It's just a completely different thing. So I coined this new term liveware, which is you know, a system that reconfigures itself based on the activity that's passing through the system. It changes itself so that it can reflect the Outside world and what's going on and its best predictions and so on.
0: Uh, that's amazing. Uh, there's, I have a line here that I cut out. I have my notes over here. Um, this is from your book. This is good. This is good. This is good writing too. The thrill of life is not about who we are, but about where who we are in the process of becoming. That's good. And then similarly, the magic of our brain lies not in its constituent elements, but in the way those elements unceasingly reweave themselves to form a dynamic, electric, living fabric. And that's your whole book in a nutshell. I love it. Tell us what that even means. It's so good.
1: Thanks. I mean, it's, you know, when, when you pick up a n- neuroscience textbook, what you see is a picture of the brain and it says, all right, this part's for vision, this part's for hearing, this part's for decision-making and so on. Um, but in fact, that is not the right way to think about it. That's just the way that the brain typically turns out, but it's this incredibly futuristic material that reconfigures itself on the fly all the time and the reason most brains turn out that way that this is vision and so on is because you've got these two orbs in the front of your skull that capture photons and turn those into spikes and that sends that information back so it becomes the visual cortex in the back there but um but if you are born blind or you go blind later, then that's no longer the visual cortex. It becomes taken over by neighboring territories. So the interesting thing is that nothing, no real estate sits fallow in the brain. Everything gets gets taken over um, by wherever the action is happening. So the brain is always trying to figure out what's happening in the outside world by I mean, the thing to remember is that the brain is locked in silence and darkness in the vault of your skull. And so it's trying to figure out what the heck is going on out there by looking at these signals that come in and correlating those with each other and correlating those with what you can do in the world, like what your motor actions cause. And then um, that's how it puts together its, its view of the world. But the thing that has I think gone underappreciated this whole time. And we're just starting to scratch the surface of this. And this is why I wrote the book is how unbelievably flexible this whole system is. You can take on a different body. You can take on different senses and it'll figure out what to do with it.
0: This is the part that uh, like, look, (laughs) I've, I've been following you for a lot forever and I've been watching you slowly go into mad scientist territory. And now you're fully there. Like uh, (laughs) in this book, you're talking about Dr. Octopus arms, you're talking about adding senses. You're talking about goggles that uh, will give you fly vision. You're talking about expanding the range of consciousness. Uh, but also, you, you make this point, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt this over and over again reading your book, that um, you sort of imagine the brain as this, this very unique entity as far as like a we're concerned, as far as what we've discovered scientifically as in the natural world. But this entity that is just always ready to create a subjective reality from whatever it's getting and it just so happens that evolution gave us these inputs but that doesn't mean i mean it, at any time it'll it's ready to wire up to some other input and it's ready to extend itself into some other peripheral uh, device or object that it can manipulate it's le- it's almost as if the body i can feel that cyberpunk idea of the body is like will slowly become less relevant as we decide, as we figure out ways to take the thing that is us and it in different environments and it just made me think about the brain in that way the the you t- use this um, mr potato head analogy a lot in, in the book to describe this even though this is to me one of those woof big giant ideas that makes you clutch your your chest uh, I like the way you bring it down with the with the mr potato head but if you could talk about that for a, for a minute thinking reframing what the yeah. brain is as an as a natural phenomenon that that I think that's something that you, you kind of mention a whole lot and it really uh, excites me
1: yeah cool I mean so I've been thinking about this my my whole career in neuroscience issues like okay you know we we're totally used to having eyes and nose and ears and mouth and fingertips or whatever and so we think all right that's the you know we're gonna figure out how the brain takes in that kind of data and does something with it but when I would look across the animal kingdom I'd see all these weird peripheral devices like you know heat pits that take an in infrared light or Electroreceptors, which pick up on the electrical fields around it, or um, magnetoreception, which picks up on magnetic fields and all kinds of weird things. And so I was wondering, gosh, does Mother Nature have to reinvent the principles of brain operation for these different animals? Like, it's hard enough in evolutionary time to say, okay, I'm going to come up with a completely different kind of sensor for the information out there, but then do you have to redesign the brain. And what I realized finally is that that mother nature doesn't have to redesign it. Once she has the principles of brain operation figured out, then she gets to experiment with different peripheral receptors, because the thing to appreciate of course, is that everything gets turned into these little electrochemical signals in the brain. So Your eyes are capturing photons and turning them into these electrochemical signals. We call them spikes. And then um, your ears are capturing air compression waves and turning them into spikes. Your nose is capturing mixtures of molecules and turning that into spikes and so on. And if I were to show you a little piece of the brain and I were to say, um, let's say I had a magical microscope that could see all the little spikes running around in that area of brain, I said, hey, David, what are we looking at? Is this visual cortex or auditory or... Or touch or smell. You wouldn't be able to tell me and I wouldn't be able to tell you because it all looks the same because it is the same. The cortex is the same everywhere. And all it's dealing with are these signals. And so what I realized is it actually doesn't matter what kind of information stream you're capturing. It gets turned into spikes and it gets incorporated. And what the brain is really good at doing is extracting patterns and noticing correlations and assigning meaning to these things and eventually building your entire subjective reality out of these things. But, but the point is that the brain doesn't know and it doesn't care where the data come from. And so, um, that's when I started really thinking about, okay, I can propose this model that the brain's like, like a potato head where you plug in whatever you plug in eyes, nose, ears, you plug in magnetoreceptors or electroreceptors or infrared or whatever you want, And the brain will just figure out what to do with it. In other words, you just, it's, it's a plug and play device. In other words, the brain is a general purpose compute device. And, um, you know, just like your computer, when you go out and you buy a new peripheral, um, you know, it is plug and play. You plug it in, your computer says, Oh, okay, I got it. There's certain protocol for how the information goes. And I know what to do with this thing now. And that's exactly what these different sensors are. These are like little portals, to the mission control center on the inside of your skull. Um, so that's the potato head model. Of evolution.
0: <laughs> I I mean, one of the things I love about this is um, I mean, this, this is something you, whenever you write a book or give a lecture about this stuff, you have to, at some point do talk about, um, you know, reality is virtual and uh, you have to say that the brain generates reality. And then we interact with that reality that it's making. So you have to talk about, okay, there's, there's, presumably an objective reality, maybe. And our senses, uh, we don't, the brain doesn't see or feel or taste. The brain has these electrical spikes generated by these peripherals, eyes and ears and stuff. And at the moment of detonation against the retina, the photon becomes an electrochemical signal. At a moment of the pressure wave moves the eardrum, electrochemical signal. And then once it's in here, it's the same stuff being sorted out. And so what we experience subjectively, the qualia, of, uh, you know, life of consciousness is something the brain does and that we are, and that that's when we get into the soupy strangeness of the limitations of what we understand. But it doesn't matter because in the book you talk about, we still know that happens, which means it can be played with. And if you could talk about some of these devices that we've already created, including one that you mentioned a lot, this sort of torso suit that. Allows for the here's the thing I want you to talk about because it's the thing that, that makes me crazy. <laughs> when once you've been wearing one of these suits, which you can explain, after a while you stop noticing that it's the feeling that you're getting, and it moves into the subjective reality. It mo- becomes just pure meaning. So just like you don't notice the pressure waves hitting your ear, you just you hear the the, the symphony, and you don't notice. What's happening to your retina? You see what's happening out there, and it feels like it's out there. When this becomes a peripheral for creating that sort of experience, you no longer feel it on your body. You feel it as if it is out there because it's becoming part of that subjective virtual thing. Talk about that at length. That blows me away.
1: Okay. Okay. So let me back up for the listeners. So what, what <laughs> okay, we did in okay. my lab is some years ago we um, we started getting interested in this idea of. If it doesn't matter how it gets in, then could we put information into the brain via an unusual pathway? And so we built devices to pass information in via the sense of touch. So one of the things we built was a vest that's covered in vibratory motors, like the little buzzer on your cell phone, but 32 of them. Um, and then what we've done nowadays is made that into a wristband called buzz and Um, And the idea with the vest or with buzz is that we can turn any kind of information stream into patterns on the skin, spatiotemporal patterns. So as an example, one of the main places we found a lot of traction is with the community of people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, We capture sound and turn it into patterns on the skin and they can come to hear the world that way. And so this is um, work we've been doing in my lab for like six years. And then we spun off this company called Neosensory. And now we're on wrists all over the world, uh, which is very lovely to to see for for me that it's having this uh, influence on people. Everywhere. And every day we get tons of emails from people talking about what it is like for them to pick up on the auditory world and realize that this is making noise or that their baby's crying or there's dog barking or their doorbells ringing or they're hearing somebody talk or whatever. But it's getting the information to the brain through the skin. It crawls up your arm and up your spinal cord to your brain as opposed to... Through the ear which is just a specialized mechanism that you know also gets auditory information and gets it um, into the brain so um, it's it's an unusual pathway but it works and so then one of the things we've been working on for some years is asking the question of what other kinds of information streams can we feed in so you know simple things like uh, navigation directions and so on but more interesting things like um, you know, can you pick up on infrared light or air quality or the a drone that you're flying where you're feeding in pitch yaw roll orientation and heading into the wristband um, or stock market or Twitter data or any of these things? Can you feed in a complete new kind of information stream? And to get to the second part of your question, David, the, the interesting part is that as long as it has some... Relevance to you, and some sort of other correlation that you can make with uh, with other data out there, it starts becoming a part of your qualia. This is the term that's used in in neuroscience for that subjective internal experience, like you know the feeling of vision or taste or hearing or whatever. But it becomes a new qualia. It becomes this new thing that doesn't feel quite like any of those, and you know, part of the part of the analogy uh, you you read this in the book. Part of the analogy that I always try to give with this is, you know, if you try imagining a new color, it's a surprisingly simple task that is surprisingly impossible. You can't, you just can't do it. You can't think of a new color, and it's the same thing with qualia. You're used to hearing and touch and taste and sight and sound and whatever. And so, and if I say, okay, now think of what a new sense would feel like, we're just limited in the fence line of our experience and so we say I just can't think of what a new thing would mm-hmm. feel like but mm-hmm. what people start to experience is something that's new so this is, this is I mean
0: I'm imagining like as we go forward and you talk about it in the book like you know we have one of these devices that gets into the brain through the skin in this way and maybe one day even like directly into the brain in some way like through a uh, something very cyberpunk some sort of like actual implant uh, you talk about the idea of if you took all of what's happening on Twitter or some future Twitter where you have sort of a subjective consciousness of the planet being fed into it and then that goes through some sort of algorithmic uh, intermediary that then plugs into the vest and then or whatever this is and then it goes in the brain and now I can sense this like futuristic psychic Gaia brain of like I can feel the emotional qualities of the entire planet or if something were to happen somewhere else like there's a a fire or a war breaks out or a news event like I feel it bodily like I have this extra sensory perception or it wouldn't be extra sensory it'd be a, an added sensory perception right but it could be the thing that blew me away the most because it's super this is super sci-fi and super mad scientist to me is the idea of plugging it into a factory and you could you would just know you'd be like I just know everything is happening in this factory I can feel every uh machine and person working in it I know everything is happening and you use the phrase you you know since you would become the factory in a way. Exactly. Um I mean and, he, and I mentioned this to a friend and she said um I bet people would use it differently. It's like don't worry he talks about it. He's like the you would because different people would, would use that in different ways for whatever they value. So you would have almost this superhero c- kind of division of well I use it to keep up with the stock market. Well I use it to to fly a drone and I use it to feel a factory. If you could talk about that anyway, I think that's just uh, that is some stuff I had never thought about until a couple of days ago.
1: Yeah, great. I mean, this is one of the things that we're pursuing now. Is um, yeah, factories or anything like oil rig. You know, let's say I'm wearing Buzz the wristband, and I can tell as I'm walking towards some machinery over here that the machinery is hot. Why? Because there's a temperature gauge on it and it's just telling my wrist, oh, you're getting closer, closer to the hot thing. Oh, you're getting closer to the edge of the oil rig here. And so, okay, you know, oh, there's somebody coming up behind you. All these sorts of information, like we have sensors that can sense these things and it's trivially easy to feed it into the buzz. We have, you know, an open API and SDKs for every platform. It's easy to feed it in. And it's easy. This is the surprise. Is it's easy to develop a new sensation about this, and to and to really get that. And yeah, exactly as you said. I think, you know, right now we're on the cusp of this, which is why I wrote this book. And I have, you know, I feel like twenty twenty, which is almost like a cuss word now. But anyway, (laughs) despite I actually
0: felt that the second you said it, I was like, I know,
1: me too. (laughs) But anyway. This moment in history is a real cusp <laughs> for us. We're right at the foot of the mountain and we're starting to move on, on this thing of, and by the way, you know, our our, our wristband just, just came out this year after 10 years of R&D in the lab. And so we just as an example, we just had a developer contest where we had 70 entries and people all over the world were building new devices for for buzz, you know, continuous glucose monitoring. I mentioned air quality monitoring. Um, uh, one woman at MIT was doing this thing where you do CO2 monitoring, and that tells you about the ventilation of the room, which tells you about your COVID risk being in a certain closed space and so on. Um, and, you know, just all these things that you can measure and monitor with other sensors, then you can feed that data directly into the skin and and develop a sensation of it. And, yeah, and as far as this, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to follow up on your superhero comment. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly where we're heading is that people are going to have different superpowers. And the really interesting part is that when you have some qualia that you're experiencing and I have something that I'm experiencing, it may be really impossible to communicate this across from, from one of yeah, us to the yeah. other to say what it is like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, my brain has adapted to knowing when it's going to rain, and your brain has adapted to knowing when the stock market is about to fall. And you, so you have a different superpower than I do. And it's, it's this, I, and this is some stuff that's been in sci fi in some ways, but you're just plainly stating in this book, no, no, we're going to make this. And yes, it's, there's nothing in the science that says, but this can't happen. And
1: yeah, and in fact, it's not even, it's not even, this is where we're going to be in a few years. This is, this is where we are now.
0: Look, the idea, also the idea that the brain, like this is, there's a lot of stuff in the world of like um, new age for 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 a long time. The idea of like uh, expanding your consciousness in all these different ways, or being able to tune yourself into feeling certain things. And you're talking about like just brute force putting it in the in your head. And and since the brain can wire up to anything, and it just so happens that we have these eyes and ears and everything, um, you can develop a whole new set of qualia that we can't we literally cannot imagine i think that is an astonishing uh just that's an astonishing thing to say with such authority and certainty and i think that's really neat
1: yeah and by the way on this (laughs) topic of on this topic of not being able to understand qualia like if you have a friend who is born blind just sit with him or her and try to explain vision and you can try till you are blue in the face and He or she will never understand really what you're talking about, which is not to say that they won't finally at some point pretend like they understand to get you to stop talking, but they can't possibly know what vision is. Just like if you were colorblind and someone tried to explain to you what orange is, you just, you know, you can't possibly understand what they're talking about. Um, So that's the weird thing is we're all trapped on our own planet inside our heads. You know, I saw this, um, this poster some years ago when the Matt Damon movie came out, uh, the Martian where Mm. you see, you know, Matt Damon standing on the red planet all by himself. And I thought, wow, that is just a perfect analogy for what's going on in our brains. We're each living on our own planet. We have this very low bandwidth communication between planets. So, you know, you and I are talking and we're assuming we're having the same experience. So if I say, um, Hey David, you know, can you point to the, to that red thing over there? You can, point to it and we both agree what we are calling red but obviously you know we don't know if how i experience red on the inside is how you experience red on the inside mm, all we mm. know is that in the external world we agree with the labeling so we call that red even though it might be very different
0: i love that. i love that's one of the first like uh dorm room sort of things i, I had donald hoffman on the show i don't know if you're familiar with donald hoffman I am. Yeah, fam- yeah. okay you're, okay uh that's really cool uh he you know he threw down the gauntlet not long ago by saying, no, that dorm room conversation is worth talking about. Like, uh, do we oh, yeah. all experience the same color? Also, how much of our subjective reality comports to objective reality? And he has a lot to say about that. He was on the show. Um, but I love that, like, if you talk to neuroscientists they're, like, n- neuroscientists, they're like, no, that is a great question. And we still can't give you a, a solid answer. Sorry. Uh, that's just how it works.
1: And we probably never will be able to. It's not like, oh, we need to do some more studies and in another year we'll know the answer. There's, It's, it's impossible because... It's your private subjective experience happening on the inside of your head. And we can measure, we can use fMRI, we can use deep electrodes, we can use anything we want, but we're not going to ever see anything except for where the blood's going or what the neurons are doing, but it doesn't tell us how you are experiencing the color red.
0: Yeah. I, um, I want to ask you something before. A lot of what I want to ask you here in the second half is uh, about how brains update their priors and change and what gives and all that. I've been, uh, talking about that for a long time on the show and been working on a book about that for a while um but before that before we get into that there's something i wanted to mention this freaked me out i was on a road trip listening to your book to the the when for the first half of the book and this made me actually pull off and, and take notes because <laughs> i never heard this before you were talking about how you know the the brain will is always attempting to like Uh, make use of the signals that are coming into it and it just so happens we wired up as children with these peripherals that we have eyeballs and such and so there are these territories that are devoted to that but if you put a blindfold on someone for long enough uh, other parts of the brain will start to encroach on the visual cortex to which you then say uh, a whole lot about what happens since we have to close our, we close our eyes for a pretty good bit of the day because the earth is in darkness and we adapted to that and we sleep, which means there's the potential for a period of time during the day where other parts of the brain would encroach. Uh, if you could, I don't want to give it away, so if you could talk about what you had to say about that.
1: Yeah, great. Uh, and by the way, the reason you never heard about it before is because this is brand new. My student and I came up with this and we um, it's uh, under review right now for publication. The idea is this, right? If you're not using, let's say your visual system, uh, because you're blindfolded, that'll start getting taken over by touch and hearing within about, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. So what we realized is because the planet rotates and wait, 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 did
0: you say 60 to 90 minutes?
1: Yeah. You start seeing activity in fMRI within 60 to 90 minutes in response to a sound or a touch you start seeing activity in the visual cortex. This was first shown in 2007. Yeah. So it's unbelievably rapid. And that's the part that really stunned me was how rapidly the change is happening. And so then uh, my student and I started talking about this and realized over time that, um, yeah, because the planet rotates into darkness and you spend half the time in darkness, obviously I'm talking about our evolutionary time, not, not currently electricity blessed times. Um, that puts the visual system at a disadvantage, which you know you can still hear and touch and smell in the dark, but you can't see. And so what we realized is the brain would need special mechanisms to blast activity into the visual cortex every let's say 90 minutes during the night. And that is precisely what dreaming is. So what we suggest is that dreaming is the brain's way of protecting the visual cortex against takeover from neighboring senses and when 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 you look at the circuitry underlying dreaming it's unbelievably specific it it's in the, the you've got this midbrain circuitry that hits this very particular nucleus and then just blasts activity just into the visual part of the brain and w- through the anatomist's lens when you look at something that's so specific and different from all the rest of the kind of circuitry you're seeing around there it seems like wow this is a really purposeful thing that's happening in there that seems like it was necessary so that your visual cortex simply doesn't get taken over at nighttime.
0: Okay, uh, okay, this is a new idea for me and for a lot of people. The idea that dreaming is your brain's defense against other parts of the brain taking over the visual cortex.
1: Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You can't
0: and, you can't just say exactly right and move on. That's that's wild. That's that's right. like that's. I feel like existentially that hurt that bloat. I mean, like it makes. I mean it's dreaming. We're talking about dreaming. It's like the we have we have mythological figures who are in charge of this. This is like the one of the greatest secrets of being a person. And you're like, "Oh no, this is what it is." Like it's just to keep your visual cortex from getting taken over, yeah, which by so the way, what say, happens within
1: 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, so let me say a couple things about that, which is, you know, first of all, one of the stunning things which we have always known is that just blasting activity into the visual cortex causes you to see. In other words, you have full, rich visual experience during the night when you're having a dream, Um, which illustrates another point, which is that you don't even need your eyes for seeing. Only a little bit of the data that we think of as vision is dribbling in through these two holes in your skull. It's Most of vision is what's happening internal. It's all internally generated activity. And so yeah, and of course, the evidence for that being when you have your eyes shut at night and you're you're having full rich visual experience. I also speculate just for fun that you know we the reason we dream has to do with the exact details of our planet's rotation combined with brain plasticity. It's sort of the the strange love child of planetary rotation and brain plasticity. Because if we had, if we were on a different kind of planet, for example, a lot of planets are tidally locked to their sun, which means the same face always faces the sun, then you wouldn't need dreaming because you're not alternating between light and dark and disadvantaging the visual system. So you wouldn't need dreaming. Or if you had a planet that spun fast enough, like lots of planets do, if it spun fast enough that you were back in the light... Um, then you wouldn't need a, a ninety-minute cycle of dreaming. So you know, maybe <laughs> in the cosmos, we're in the minority of creatures that that dream.
0: We, we we truly are the dreamers. We're the we are the dreaming species. That that's killing me. I love I love everything about that. Uh, I could wax poetic about that forever. Because um, like, even though you've you've taken away some of the poetry in a sense, I have that Feynman feeling of like. But then it adds more poetry to it if you think about it long enough.
1: Exactly. Uh, right.
0: Uh, so thank you, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm still I'm still wrestling with it. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month That's com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 25, 37,025 and one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, And now, back to our interview with David Eagleman. Um, I wanted to talk for a minute about um, the... This, I was actually very surprised that the book sort of shifts in the second half to talking about the idea of, of plasticity and, you know, you're, you're thrown in... this As a brain, we're thrown into this world half-baked, And then we uh, wire up to all the inputs from experience and culture. And you. I'm particularly interested right now in the idea of like when a person comes to meet another human being and they have this model of reality that is a mix of nature and nurture. And what happens when they interact with someone is like, well, I'm afraid that some of the things that you think, feel, and believe are perhaps uh, questionable. And then they have to interact. And then there's this process of persuading or updating or learning that all takes place um mm-hmm. and to get into that idea like you you start out by just saying like you're 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 currently a different person than you were uh, a year ago physically your brain changes as we experience new things and if you look at a previous version of yourself like in a diary or a social media post you're looking at a person that this is, this is usually your, your words like that person shared your history as a human being up until the moment that that was put out in, in text or you wrote it out and then from that moment forward you have new experiences and you can really feel that depending on how far back a post goes, but like you take it one more step further and saying like, if you were to take someone with your exact DNA and teleported your baby self into like the caveman times, and then they lived all the way up until your current age, the differences would be enormous more than you might would think. If you could just talk about that for a minute, I'm interested in, in sort of exploring that idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, the general scoop is who you are has only a little bit to do with your DNA. Um, you know, when the Human Genome Project was completed in the year 2000, it was a very exciting time. We were all so thrilled about that announcement. It seemed like, wow, now we're really going to unlock what it is to be a human. But it turns out, in a sense, it was a super important piece of science, but disappointing because it just knowing the DNA, just knowing the instruction book for how to wire up tells you very little about who you actually are and your beliefs and your hopes and um, all, everything about your personality and so on. So it turns out that the other half of the secret to life is something we can't write down in a textbook. It's everything that happens to you from the time you're a little baby, everything you see and hear and feel and every experience you have, every conversation you have, um, that is what wires up the, the rest of your brain. And so nowadays, just as a side note, you know, there's always been this question of nature versus nurture. And the Mm nature-nurture debate is totally dead because it's always both,
0: um, Mm -hmm.
1: interacting in a very detailed way. And so that's why if you, with your exact DNA, were born 30,000 years ago, you wouldn't be, you know, David running around looking for where you're gonna find your microphone to do a podcast, (laughs) I mean, you would just be a completely different human. and so that's the weird part is, and I think the part that we don't always recognize so much, part of why I want to write this book is, you know, we are, um, we are reflections of the world around us. Each of us mm. is a, a, a vessel of our space and time. As And what I mean by your space, like you were born in a particular place and then you traveled here and then you went there and then you went there. You you gathered up all those experiences on that little thin trajectory through time. And I, let's imagine we're about the same age. I was born in a different place and I had a different trajectory um, and gathered up different experiences. And so you're quite different um, as a result of those. You know, I, I start the book actually with a little quotation from Martin Heidegger, which is one of my favorite quotations. He said, every man is born as a thousand men, but dies as a single one. Mm. And of course what that means, I'm not actually even sure what he, but what it means to me, and I think it's the same thing is, you know, we're born sort of in this um, there's sort of this cone. If you've ever seen these space time diagrams, you know, like all the things you could be, all the things you could go, all the experiences you could have, but what you end up doing is taking a very specific trajectory through this and by the time you die, you are exactly who you are. Um, but all along the way, there are doors closing of who you, who you might have been.
0: See, that's p- very powerful in the sense that like, we do have control over like, uh, whether or not you believe in free will. We do have control over saying, I'm going to experience this or not, or I'm going to do this or not, or I'm going to learn this skill or not. And what you choose to do with this thing that will wire up to any experience it gets is you will physically alter the brain and you will physically become a different version than you would have become if you hadn't done the thing. Uh, and you go into it in a number of different ways in that second half about this person chooses to learn an instrument or this person chooses to be you know, a, a London taxi driver. And it physically alters what they can and can't do with their brain. And then that laterally can be applied to other parts of their experience. Um, I don't know. There's something in there I feel. I can feel something inside me getting... A little freaked out by it, but also inspired by it. <laughs> you know the the um, do, do you have kids, David? I don't have any kids no, I don't have any kids.
1: Uh, okay, so I, I do, and you know one of the one of the tough parts about being a parent is this issue of what choices do I make for my kids? And you know, parenting is one of the most important jobs possible to make these decisions as well as possible. but also, I think it it, it relieves a little bit of the pressure on parenting to realize. You know the world is huge. The number of experiences that will happen to your child, you you can't possibly control but a tiny fraction of that. And so although you have to take your job very seriously and give your kids the best possible experiences and the most love and attention and touch and all that stuff, um, the fact is that it's not like you can control the direct you know the, the change that you're uh, control the direction that your kid is going on.
0: yeah in that in that domain, if you could talk about the relationship between motor babbling, and social babbling i found that very fascinating
1: yeah essentially your brain is trying your brain is the mission control center and it's 3 pounds and as i said it's locked inside this armored bunker plating of your skull and it's trying it doesn't know what your body looks like so it's trying to figure that out so it does Motor babbling, by which I mean, you know you're, you just watch a baby the way they move their arms and they squish something on their forehead and they grab <laughs> the bar of their crib and they eat their toe and whatever. they're They're just trying things out and seeing what the feedback is. And so I call that motor babbling um, as opposed to you know, or an analogy to the kind of verbal babbling that a baby does. It's the exact same thing. The baby's trying to figure out how to use her ears and her mouth. And so she's trying things out, she tries it out, she gets feedback in her ear, she can compare that to the sound she's hearing from the adults. And so this allows her to, um, you know, to to refine what she's saying out of her mouth. It's the same thing with motor babbling, you try things, you know, you're learning how to ride a bicycle, you tilt to the left, tilt to the right, you try things, you fall. And it's just like babbling and then you get better and better at being able to do it and once you get really good at something then it's burned down to the unconscious circuitry where you don't even you know you don't even know how you're doing something it's just um your brain has figured it out and turned it essentially into the hard wiring.
0: and you and you take that a step further and saying this you know i love the idea that you have the, you're building up these experiences and you have a model and you kind of so you have an expectation of what the world's going to do when you do X. And 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 then if it does do that, you kind of don't even register it. You just move forward because, yay, the model's doing what it's supposed to do. It's predicting and helping me create goals and helping me reach those goals and plan and all these other things. Um, exactly, but that, just but, as a
1: quick side note, that's that's all attention is. Attention is when you have a violation of your internal model, where something doesn't yeah. come out exactly as predicted. Then you attend to it. You turn your high-resolution sensors onto it to try to figure out what the heck just happened there. And once you get it, then you then that becomes part of your internal model, and you don't pay attention to it anymore.
0: So, the, so this is wonderful. The idea of being, we can think about this in motor terms, or or learning language, or or. You expect to see something, and you see something you didn't expect to see, and all of a sudden you have to you pay attention, and you go, okay, well, it wasn't what I expected. Noted, update, uh, rewire a little bit. And this happens very incrementally, and sort of we slowly shape ourselves to the changing environment. The brain changes to the changing environment, which is probably one of the greatest things about us is that we can do that. Yeah. Um, but then, like, if you take that into the realm of ideas and concepts and beliefs yeah. and opinions and attitudes... I feel like it's the exact same thing taking place in a way, right? Uh, or I'm sure those. I, w- I want to hear your thoughts on it because you say the constant testing of the world is probably also how we learn to think. And I would like to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. In fact, I was going to come back to this point when you asked about earlier about people's beliefs and so on and what's going on in society right now. Um, mm-hmm. Because we are all these vessels of our own space-time, we have these beliefs. And the part that I found so fascinating, especially recent in recent months and years is that whatever your model tells you you take that to be obviously true mm-hmm. and anyone who has a different model of things they're just you know they're just wrong they're idiots they're they're crazy <laughs> for thinking that and so one of the interesting things about polarization is just you know i get to watch people Thinking that about each other, like, oh, my God, well, they're they're just insane for thinking that or they've got some, you know, devious purpose that they're trying to do or whatever. But in fact, each of us has been crafted by a whole trajectory of. Um, experience. And by the way, our other family members, which means you know you might be influenced by a family member or you might be reacting against a particular family member. You have a sibling who's the opposite political orientation than you do and you can't stand it. You, you argue with that person. And so whatever whatever all the factors that come together are, you've come to a particular belief about the world and you think it's right and that everyone else is wrong. who Who disagrees with it? And so one of the really important things, I think, from the point of view of neuroscience going on right now is to really understand that and think about that. And, you know, I've been, I don't know if you know this, David, but I've done these experiments in my lab about the issue of empathy. Um, I'll just tell you really quickly, uh, the idea is you're in the scanner, in the brain scanner, fMRI, and you see a hand get stabbed with a syringe needle, and that activates this part of your Mm. brain, this network in your brain that's involved in empathy. It's not your hand getting stabbed, but it's uh, nonetheless, you feel the pain of the other person in Mm -hmm. a sense. You're simulating that. But what we then do is we take six hands and we give each of them a one word label, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Hindu, Scientologist, Atheist. And then the computer goes around and picks a hand and you see the hand get stabbed. And the question is, do you care as much about the hand getting stabbed if it's not a member of your in-group? And that is, that's exactly the thing. So, you know, we tested all different um, we tested all different groups and they've got their in-group where they care a lot when they see that hand get stabbed and they have their out-groups where they just don't care as much. Um, And it turns out, we feel
0: less less empathy if it's the stabs, a out-group member.
1: Exactly right. And the thing is, by the way, this is a low-level, almost instant neural response to seeing pain in another person. So this isn't something that is cognitively where you think about it, like, oh, how do I feel about that? This is just your brain's immediate response when it sees pain in another person. All we've done is add a one-word label. I mean, the hands all look the same. And um, so it turns out – I actually did those experiments some years ago. But just in the last year, really, this has become an issue that's on the forefront of what really matters in terms of us, um, in terms of, you know, what is obvious to everybody, the diminishing empathy for our outgroups. So you have some set of beliefs and you think, okay, well, I'm going to really care about that. But, uh, but now, you know, one of the experiments that my student I did is is this thing about, um, you know, imagine a, a 56-year-old man and you see him twist his ankle on the sidewalk and fall down, you know how do you feel? So people generally feel immediate empathy. Now we say, okay, now imagine that that fifty-six-year-old man is at a political rally for the presidential candidate that you're not voting for. How do you <laughs> feel? And and suddenly their empathy just goes to zero. They just don't care anymore. It's very it's very worrisome.
0: You know uh, when I hear that kind of stuff, I think about how that's happening. In a sense, I mean I know it's it's this language gets very. Tricky when we try to talk about this stuff, but the that's happening to you. Like hunger happens to you. And you don't choose it, it happens and you experience it. And then and uh Robert Burton had that book on being certain where he says the feeling of certainty happens to you. You're like you, you, you're in a state of mind where you're like, I feel certain about that. I have no choice but to feel certain about that. And if I don't feel certain about it, I have no choice but not to feel certain about it. And the the empathy response is like. I intellectually at some conscious level, I don't want to not feel empathy for this person, but it happens to me. And then I have to deal with that experience. Sort of,
1: sort of. So here's the thing, a big, a big part of this, a big part of our way out of this is to have metacognition, to be aware of how we think and how our brains work such that if you see the guy twist and trip his, you know, trip and twist his ankle, but he's wearing the political t-shirt of your opponent, then to think about, okay, I get it. That happened to me, my empathy or lack of empathy. But because I'm capable of metacognition, I can think about, okay, well, what does this mean? For example, let's say that you didn't feel empathy. You can say, all right, well, look, you know, should I feel empathy? What if I pictured that this guy is somebody's Mm. dad? This guy is somebody's son, you know, he's somebody's spouse. Yeah. Um, you know, what if I really think about this? Then you can do it and you can make yourself slightly more aware so that we're not just subject to things happening to us, feelings getting served up to us, but instead we question everything. So it's this thing about not just questioning everything on the outside world, which is what, uh, which is what a scientific mindset, you know, teaches you how to do, but, but questioning everything on the inside world.
0: Yeah. For sure. And yet that's a skill that can be learned. And yep. I feel like you talk about, I can wear a device that gives me an extra, it expands the range of my ability to use this brain, my consciousness. I should also be able to expand the range of that by learning the skill of metacognitive, you know, uh, interactions with my own thoughts. I think that's yeah. a skill that can be learned like anything else. The brain will adapt
1: to it and grow. It, exactly right. And And by the way, if anybody's interested, I wrote an article in The Economist last year called... Does your brain care about other people? It depends. And and I go through what, what I think are the important, the important lessons on this stuff, including metacognition. And, you know, it's also the case that there are things that we can do on a, um, on a societal level too. I mean, one of the things I'll just mention this quickly, I, because I think this is really important is, you know, the Iroquois native Americans, which were up in Northern America and um, uh, Southern Canada for for decades had bloody infighting between these five or six tribes. Um, and eventually a guy came to power who came to be known as the Great Peacemaker. And what he did is he, within every tribe, essentially assigned clan membership. So let's say you and I are in the same tribe, but you get mm. assigned to the you know elk clan and I'm a member of the eagle clan and so on. And what that means is that there's, there's now this cross hatching. So I say to you, hey, we're in the same tribe. Let's go attack that other tribe. And you say, well, I would, but there's a member of the elk clan in that tribe who I like. And I That's say, curious. actually, there's a member of the eagle clan that I like over there too. And so, so now our allegiances are mixed up a bit. They're, they're cross stitched and that That's makes it harder to go and, and do an attack. And so this was a very clever thing. And I haven't really seen many other analogies to this. Um, but I think on a societal level, this is something that is very worth, uh, exploring.
0: I love that. Do you have a hard out at three? Because I have three questions, but I'm going to change it to two. If you do.
1: I, I pretty much maybe two minutes okay. after three. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then, um, let me ask one question and then the, the last, the very important ones, you can give a shorter answer to this one. Uh, in regards to artificial intelligence, do you think that as we develop artificial intelligence, it's giving us any insight into how consciousness itself works? Um, or would be more useful to consider artificial intelligence as a completely different kind of conscious experience, something that is not correlated with the way brains work?
1: Um, it's definitely something that's not... Uh, I say this because not... you
0: were a science advisor on Westworld, by the way. So go Yeah,
1: ahead. yeah. Uh, Okay, so with AI, first of all, it's not the way that brains work, but it's not not the way that brains work. It's just a very simplified cartoon version of the way brains work and what people have been able to do by saying, okay, we're going to take units and we're going to connect them and have different connection strengths between them. They've been able to do all kinds of really incredible stuff that has superhuman performance. So let's say you want to distinguish a, a million pictures of cats and dogs, it'll do it better than humans can. So that's cool. But it's nothing like a human brain in the sense that if you then say to this network, hey, now I want you to distinguish pictures of, you know, camels and bears, it'll fail catastrophically. It can't, it Hmm. doesn't have what's called generalized artificial intelligence or generalizable. And so, but, you know, you compare that to a three-year-old kid who walks into a room and can navigate a complex course and manipulate adults and find the food in the fridge and eat it and do a million things. And AI just can't do any of that. So in a sense, AI really loses to three-year-olds. Um, so, so that's an answer to the question of, is it the same as the brain or not? It's sort of a a simplified take on the brain that can do very amazing, very narrow tasks. Now there's a separate question about is AI conscious? And I don't think we have any shred of evidence now that AI is or, or would be conscious. Now the mystery is how our brains conscious, given that they appear to just be made of pieces and parts, just physical stuff a lot of it, you know, 86 billion neurons and 0.2 quadrillion connections. It's an incredibly complicated system, but it's just physical stuff. So somehow we have to answer that question of how you get stuff to be conscious. But suffice to say that currently we have no idea whether a computer program that you run, some deep learning algorithm is conscious. We don't have any reason to think so um, at the moment.
0: I like the idea of other minds can also include artificial intelligence. Maybe one, you know, we, there's a whole Daniel Dennett thing and all the other rest where you're like, You know, cephalopods, human brains, artificial intelligences, what is consciousness? I realize that if we got to get into that, that's three more hours of stuff. There's a thing I want to ask you about. This is a deep cut from your own stuff, Uh, and it'll be the last thing I can ask because we're running out of time. I'm really interested in like persuasion, and a lot of persuasion. The best persuasive techniques in all of psychology all seem to to converge on one idea, no matter what they're trying to persuade, whether it's a belief or an attitude or whatever. And it's trying to get the brain to go into a sort of a learning mode, like instead of going from like read mode to write mode. Even though I understand it's always in write mode. But you mentioned in the book about the effect of acetylcholine and 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 the brain sort of going into a oh wait I should probably pay attention to this and learn. And there are a lot of persuasive techniques that are just all about building up rapport with another person and getting them to that place where they go, oh, wait a minute, I might be wrong about that, or it's worth rethinking this with you, and it sort of gets them in that state. You talk about it in the book, but in your other book, in Incognito, you mention someone named Mrs. G, and I've thought about this for ages, and I'm absolutely exhilarated that I get to actually ask about this with you. And I just really kind of want you to talk about it. I don't know if you remember it, but um, you had the I have the notes here. You had a, a one of your patients who had uh, anosognosia, the denial of disorder. She had had a stroke, and um, one of her uh, she could only close one eye, and um, but she felt subjectively as if she could close both. And you would uh, hold up three fingers and say, "How many fingers?" You'd say, "Close both your eyes," and she would close one. And then you'd hold up three fingers and, and ask her, "Are both your eyes closed?" She'd say, "Yes." How many fingers am I holding up? She'd say three. And then you would say, how could it be possible that you know how many fingers I'm holding up if both of your eyes are closed? And then she did something incredible to me that I feel like um, says a whole lot about the human condition. If you could talk about that at any length, I would appreciate it.
1: Yeah. the um, Yeah. I mean, this is the incredible thing about... Um, anytime you meet a patient who has some sort of cognitive thing going on because of a stroke or a tumor or traumatic brain injury or whatever, this is all part of what led me to this framework that I built out in incognito about how we have a team of rivals going on in the brain. In other words, it's not that you are one thing. It's that you're made up of all these different neural networks that are running in parallel, and you can get contradictions and contradictory answers. This is also why you can cuss at yourself and control yourself and contract with yourself because you're not one thing. You're instead what I analogize to a, a neural parliament where you've got all these mm. different political parties. Sometimes they vote one way in the different circumstance, the same parties voted a different way. And so, you know, if I, I think the analogy I used in the book is that if I offer you some warm chocolate chip cookies, you know, part of your brain wants to eat that. It's a rich energy source. Part of your brain says, don't eat it. You'll get fat. Part of your brain says, okay, I'll eat it, but I'll promise to go to the gym tonight and so on. And so we are, this is what makes humans nuanced and complicated yeah. and, and, and fascinating um, you know, I'll just mention something about the first part of your question though, about persuasion, which is the, uh, you know, one of the things that I, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about, about empathy and how we don't care that much about people who are different from us and so on. My, my second piece of advice to narrow the empathic divide is this issue about building, better models of of other people and so yeah. you know one of the things one of the things I you know point out is that things like art and literature and so on is always the way to do this and in fact uh, somebody had once suggested that the advent of the printing press in 1493 mm. was the um was the thing that caused more empathy in the world, because now you could access stories and literature about other people, you can step into other people's shoes and lives, and it gives you a broader view of of humanity. The the point is that once you do that, once you step into someone else's life, it's no longer that easy to relegate the characters or people to, to outgroups. And so I think this is interestingly related to what you just pointed out about persuasion, because when you get curious about other people, and you really try to Understand yeah. them and their model, where they're coming from. Um, this you're building a better better model of them. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the model everyone starts out with is, "Wow, if you're voting for the other presidential candidate, you must be insane or a jerk or whatever it is." Terrible human a being. Or terrible you've been, human you've being. Been,
0: you've been brainwashed. Exactly. You hear that all the time. Because exactly. I know how reality works. <laughs> I see the world as it is because I carefully consider all the information. You, on the other hand.
1: <laughs> and you so, all you've so, been doing here, is
0: consuming fake news. Right. And so here, like, I w- Just read this and just read this, and you will naturally come to the same conclusions that I came to <laughs> uh, because that's what anybody would do because I am a default human being.
1: Yes, <laughs> <Is that>? exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, so, and uh, so this issue about building better models of others – is a very important thing to do f- if we have any hopes or desires to come back to the center a bit and not be I so feel you polarized.
0: And the, the Mrs. G example I bring up, to me, relates to persuasion because she, um, you know, you told her, how could it be possible? And so it's clearly she's wrong. It's impossible. It's an impossible thing. But because of the other damage she had to her brain, you write that she went through what you call a cognitive filibuster where she just sort of stopped for a minute, and then went back to. She just she just dumped it. She dumped the 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 dissonance, and I think most people who hadn't had that kind of damage, they would be like, "Oh, I'm wrong. I need to deal with it. I'm now in learning mode. Let me see where I'm wrong here. Uh, expectations did not meet what I thought they would." But because of her very, her very specific condition, she just dumped it. And uh, you said it's very disconcerting to watch uh, because you said if there's a battle between these two parts of the brain, in the, in this case, they both just fatigued to the point of attrition and she just moved on. It's like she blue screened and then just moved on. And it just, to me, it, I just, it's something about that. Like I know that like, anytime I read about anybody who has any kind of lesion or stroke or, or, or an accident, I realize you know, whatever's happening to them, what could happen to me? No different than like yeah. the people you talk about in the book who can echo locate. I'm like, I could echo locate if I worked on it hard enough. Like um, there's no difference between a person who's something's been revealed because of a, a disorder or a disability or a, a damage Or to someone who's added something because of practice. And the idea that the brain is equal in those ways, it's sort of like, you know, I don't know, I just feel like uh, I've seen people where I've got them in a lock. I've got them in a logic lock. And I've watched them go, well, you know, and I I, see them want to move past it. And she physically had to. There's nothing she could do about the fact because she could not reconcile. I think she had damage to her her anterior cingulate cortex, which seems to be correlated with, Recognizing, you know, when there's a, a, a when there's conflict, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, just, I don't know; it just blows my mind. I, I've never stopped thinking about that. Awesome, this is yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I really uh, good. I'm glad, and I'm also, I mean, and that's a very um wise thing that you've concluded. Also, which is that it could be you too. And this, I mean, this is the weird fate that we all face, right? We all know we're going to diminish through time and die at some point, and um, Yeah, so when you see patients with damage to their brain, that's I think exactly the right thing to think about. Is not whoa, that's weird. That's someone else. That's so different from me. But instead, think, wow, all it takes is a little bit of damage to this very delicate pink material that makes me me, and I would be exactly in that situation.
0: I feel you, and I know we have to go, but I mean, like the uh, there's a. In the literature, there are people who've like been in motorcycle accidents, and they develop like Cotard syndrome and things like that, where they, they, they have they have an, they have one accident, and now they cannot they don't feel an emotional response when they see a relative. And since they're trying to justify that in some way, they're like, "Why wouldn't I feel an emotional response? Oh, that person must be a robot or an imposter." Or um, there's all these yeah. all the sorts of things like that can happen. You can lose an, an emotional connection to your own body, and, all, and so the natural like uh, extension of the um, explanation of it to your own self is, well, I guess I died and I'm a ghost now. Like, And all that happened was one bump to the head. And now there's that is it, they cannot not feel that way. They have to reconcile that they no longer have this particular reaction in a place that they used to have that reaction. The brain's trying to sort that out. And the way it sorts it out often is in these sort of narrative, um, complex narrative uh, like stories that they'll end up telling themselves that seem to make all the things that are being input make sense. Like, okay, if I believe this, these seven things together gel. And people on the outside of it are like, that doesn't gel. But on the inside, it does. And you feel this immediate separation of reality. And I I don't know that that stuff is always excites me. And a lot of it's in your work. It's it's um, really impressive stuff.
1: Thanks. Thanks. I mean, the last thing I'll say on this is that it's interesting the way you phrase it because people on the outside, we say, wow, that doesn't make sense, Bob. You must have hit your head and we'll examine you and so on. But but the fact is, the people on the outside, we all have brains that are running similarly to one another. And so we get to take Bob into the hospital and try to get Bob to be more like us. But, but the fact is, the exact consciousness that we have that's wired up in, in almost everybody, is just, you know, it's a consensus reality. Oh, that's
0: right. Yeah, it's just, if everybody had the the same bump as Bob, except one person, then they'd all be like, no, nobody feels
1: that way but you. You, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's a very delicate (laughs) system, by the way. I mean, you know, when people do drugs of various sorts, you know, people, you know, I I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so everybody out here is doing psychedelics and so on, and they all tell me the stuff about... Tapping into cosmic blah blah blah. But it's not actually about that, it's about you're changing the you know binding constant on this receptor by five percent, and that's it. That causes the network to run differently, and suddenly you're talking to silver leprechauns and having some, you know, some experience. But what what that what that what my interpretation of that is when I hear as neuroscientists is just Jesus, it is really delicate in there. All you need to do is stick in some molecule that binds this receptor, just changes things a tiny bit, and suddenly your reality is a completely different thing. And so all of our brains are tuned very, very finely and specifically so that we happen to share a reality. And, and I don't actually mean all of our brains because you know 1% of the population has schizophrenia, their brains are too just a little different. They have just a little bit different levels of dopamine and so on, and as a result, they are experiencing something different. And as you just said, if all of us were schizophrenic except for one, then we'd all say, "Like, wow, that guy needs some help."
0: Yeah, that's why I'm really happy that the word neurotypical has sort of risen up through the um, through the literature. I mean, it, language is the hardest part of all this. We we I have this problem. I usually re, I usually interview psychologists and. No one in psychology will agree on the terms. Uh, like, that's the biggest problem. Like, it's not like astronomy. And even, even in that world, they sometimes it's hard to agree on the terms. But, like, I'm writing about belief right now. Beliefs, attitudes, and values. And I could ask a hundred different psychologists to define belief, and I will probably get close to 100 definitions. And It's until you can agree on the terms, it's difficult to articulate the idea. And then it's difficult to build on the terms and then build a model from that and then make science happen. And when you talk about brain stuff, when you're talking about subjective reality, like even in this conversation, we're both trying our best to say, like, okay, we're both talking about the same thing, right? (laughs) And that is on top of all the work you do, that next level of like, how do we discuss it and how do we move the idea from your brain to mine and back again? I feel like that's, um, that's something worth talking about a lot. and and agreeing on the terms is difficult. and it's compounded by the fact that we don't all have the same
1: stuff going on uh, exactly right. So I mean, <laughs> language, as I mentioned earlier, is a very low bandwidth channel. And it may be that, it's it's not the case that we say, okay, let's just fast forward 20 years and then all the psychologists will finally agree on the definition. It, it'll never happen because it means something different to, to all of us. Here's the last thing I'll say then I really got to go. Okay, by. there we go, the, there um, we go. You know, in, in neuroscience slash psychology, there was this argument for many years between two uh, titans of psychology about whether we... Imagine whether we're sort of seeing something visually when we're doing visual imagination. So if I say to you, okay, David, imagine a, an ant crawling on a red and white picnic cloth towards a jar of purple jelly. The question is, are you seeing that like a movie in your head or is it purely conceptual and blah, blah, blah. So there were these two, um, you know, psychologists had big arguments for years and years and wrote stuff in the literature and stuff. And what it finally turned out is that, uh, it turns out there's a big spectrum across the population in terms of the vividness of visual imagery. And one of the psychologists was at this end of the spectrum, the other psychologist was at the other end of the spectrum. So they were both arguing for what they thought was right. Um, but in fact, they just had different personal experiences. Now we measure, I've done papers in my lab where we measured lots of people with this vividness of visual imagery questionnaire. And then we stick them in the scanner and we look at how much visual cortex cortex activity they have when they're imagining something. And it correlates, you know, the more more visual cortex activity you have, the more of a visualizer you are, the more vivid it is. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that, you know, that's just one thing we've learned in the recent years is that, wow, there's a whole spectrum across the population. So when you talk to someone and say, but, but can't you, can't you see what I, you know, can't you envision what I'm talking about? They might have a totally different thing going on inside there.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's coarse. And there's a reason why we have art and science and, philosophy all at the same time trying to articulate what really is ineffable. And uh, we just, all we can ever do at any given moment is more or less agree. Okay, we're both kind of talking about the same thing. And I uh, think <laughs> and I think that's a good way to, to end. I want everybody who's watching or listening to this to, to read your entire uh, canon, catalog, whatever we call it, your corpus. Um, but expect, but if you want to start, I don't think it's bad to, to go backwards because uh, Live Wired is a really cool book. And if you're especially into like cyberpunk stuff and you're thinking about 2020, what can possibly, what does the future hold? It's all about, it's very optimistic and aspirational and beautiful in that way. And I highly recommend it. And I thank you so much for coming on. It was great to meet you.
1: Great. Awesome, David. Thanks for having me.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, or youarenotsosmart.com, where you can find the show notes for this episode. The music in this episode comes from Clash by Caravan Palace. They are the opening music. The interstitial music was by Jonathan that is J-N-A-T-H-Y-N. I found him over on TikTok, and this music is Banjo Apocalypse. David Eagleman's website is Eagleman.com, and his Twitter is at David Eagleman. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also over on Facebook slash you are not so smart and YouTube, where you can watch this entire interview, the video of it, over there at You Are Not So Smart. Again, everything's You Are Not So Smart. If you would like to support this one-person operation, that's right. One person operation. You can go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and all sorts of other cool things. There's about half a million of you listening to the show. I would like that to go all the way up to a million and more. So please just tell everyone you know about this, send links all over the place and come back in two weeks.